At which point Rory returns some minutes later and yet in your ears just seconds later with the big news. Did they find the hole? Uh, yes. Uh, ah. the, and also, to be honest, some very, very small dints that I could not possibly have noticed, which strike me as being, I mean, essentially just because you drive a car. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes like, pebbles hit it and stuff. I just, I'm, I'm genuinely, I think next time I will go through Chinch Motors. Yeah. I think Chinch Motors is probably the future. The non yeah. the, yeah. the non inspection policy is definitely a yeah is, no is a, ma a major asked, bonus. If you know I'd, what I'm saying? But it's all above board. Most of it is above board. There's certain things like there's you know there's a couple of scratches and stuff that I, I probably should have tried to polish out and forgot. I love scratches, uh, but I mean that literally you're talking like minuscule dents. I love I just, dents. I, you just find Kitch it. Melters, it, it embraces it, dents it? and scratches. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's life, I, I, isn't it? Your 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 car has lived. It's lived. Let it run. Let it run free. Neil Redfern has has lived. He's just. He's... Oh boy, he has been signed by many teams whose prospects are twenty. He's been hit by a lot of footballing <laughs> pebbles. He's 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 picked up a few dints along the way, but he's still beautiful. Now do they start to say right? We're going to take off four pounds for that dint. Eight pounds. Is that how? Is it a haggling process? Are you not renewing with Hyundai though? Oh no. Oh, that's why. That's oh, you're why breaking. You're breaking the chain. Oh, they don't okay. care. They're breaking the chain. Yeah. So, but, but the my plan is to. Uh, I've, I've disagreed with the inspection. The man was very nice. Disagreed with the inspection. Uh, so I'm going to argue literally everything. Partly because it's got about twenty thousand fewer miles in it than it should do, uh, which means it's worth far more than Hyundai are expecting. So they they should be prepared to wear a bit of the trust, frankly. That won't go well. It won't work. It'll cost me money. It's incredibly polite the way that you just basically said, screw you, Hyundai! <laughs> screw you! But in a very British way. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, the dear leader, Rory Smith, the great leader, and Andy Hinchcliffe, the Iron Lady. The food is the second and therefore Ooh. main course, Chinch, of your virtual feast being provided by Nicky Hinchcliffe. He dons his glasses because if it's anything like the starter, it's quite a lengthy description of something that will whet our appetites. Oh, delightful. It's organic mini chicken breast fillets in a cream and brandy sauce with just a, a hint of tarragon served with fresh green beans, baby carrots and minted buttered new potatoes. And maybe a little glass of Chablis on the side. Okay, that, that started a bit sexual, then went a bit Hannibal Lecter at the end. So I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that. But thank you, Nikki, And indeed, Chinch. The Just is, wait Chinch. for the pudding! <laughs> you always got on a separate piece of paper and everything. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Premier League! This is indeed part two of our Between the Euros and the Domestic Season starting series. A series hewn from the intellectual rock that is Stephen Wyeth's brain and carefully curated around the fact that we want three weeks off from each other. And once again, given that we've shelved the further ado section of the podcast, otherwise known as correspondence, here is part two of our three-part series on Premier League exceptionalism. Today, <laughs> we're talking about finances, transfers and players. We made a joke at some point during the Euros about how an English club would doubtless overpay for a player who did quite well during the tournament based on the fact that they had the money to do so and trust in their dedicated team of scouts was superseded by a Paborski-esque whim. But do the Premier League clubs still have the propensity to throw money that they have and others, including crucially a foreign selling club, do not? Or following the pandemic, are they no longer an exception to the rule being followed everywhere else, apart from, it would appear in Madrid and Barcelona, that you have to cut your cloth accordingly? So, Premier League exceptionalism, colon, finances. 
Is anybody going to buy Patrick Schick? Well, so I think this is quite a bad summer to be a tournament player, to be the you know the breakout star of of a major tournament, because obviously the whole market has been impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and the subsequent hiatus of football. Um, to give it its official title. But also I think the vast majority of teams now understand that you shouldn't really buy a player off the back of a tournament, not because they're a bad player or because it's a fluke, but because their price is inevitably higher. So the, the two this summer that I think that applies to most are Schick and, and Mikkel, Mikkel Damsgaard, who who will have shot up in value over the course of the last, the last sort of month, six weeks. And their clubs will now be asking far more money for them than they would have been a month ago. Uh, but will, will they be asking Premier League clubs more than other well, clubs? And this will is... Premier League clubs be more likely to take that bait? From what we with, have, even with the context of the pandemic. From what we have seen thus far this summer, there are most likely three clubs who have actual money to spend, and that's PSG, who've already bought Gigi Donnarumma and the world's greatest footballer Ashraf Hakimi, and Gini Wijnaldum and Sergio Ramos. Um, and I think you can assume that City, who are going for Grealish and Kane, and Chelsea, who also have private wealth, are are going to be in that bracket as well. Everybody else is scrabbling around a bit because everybody else has lost loads of money and is in a sell-to-buy proposition. The way the transfer market normally works is that the money has to come from either one of those three clubs, two of whom are in England, or in flusher times, Real Madrid or Barcelona, Um or it has to come from the Premier League, that the, the lesser lights of the Premier League have to start spending money on players from France and Germany and Holland and Italy and Spain. And that, that is then, that is the kind of the lubricant that allows the market to run. The problem now is no one's quite clear how much money the Premier League clubs have. They all want to cut their wage bills a little bit. They all want to sell to buy, but they are a lot of their players are priced out of prospective moves because other clubs can't pay them as much money as they earn in the Premier League. So we will see to an extent I don't, the short answer is I don't know. I think that it strikes me there is enough money knocking about that the market will be relatively normal. I don't think it'll be one of those kind of buster windows that you, you know you saw a couple of years ago where it was sort of 1.7 billion spent on players or whatever. Um, but the Premier, the big problem for for every other league in Europe is that it's the Premier League that provide the money. That we talked last week about how the Premier League sits on top of the pyramid diagonally, teeters on the brink of the pyramid connected by some sort of thin membrane the in a transfer we, we really need a structural engineer to provide us with some sort of guidance on how that might work in, in a transfer sense the premier league is the top of the pyramid and it's it's partly because players want to play want to play in it that 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 is true but it's also because players can earn the most money here and because and partly because clubs can get the most value for their players here so they want they want to sell to premier league teams there's a slight um What's the word? Adjunct to it, which is that Premier League teams tend to play tend to pay in cash up front, which most European teams don't do, which, which is a massive advantage. But it means if you're a club with with a, a midfielder, a 25 year old midfielder, and you've got two, you know, Europa League contending German teams, two Europa League contending Spanish teams, and two mid table lower mid table Premier League teams, the player will earn more money here in England, and the clubs will pay more here in England. So you want to sell to those clubs, which is great for attracting talent, but it's very bad for offloading it. And again, I suppose we see that the the Premier League kind of becomes an environment unto itself, that it's really hard to offload players who you don't want from Premier League teams because most of the teams in Europe just can't afford to pay them. 
Which is interesting because uh, to keep our uh, American theme going, Reaganomics doesn't necessarily work in the Premier League. There is no trickle down because you can't get rid of it and, and, and everything's stuck at the top. But I'm, I'm interested because Stephen mentioned Roberto Martinez last week about the, the kind of doing Everton and Wigan and then going to, to Belgium and, and, and about the relative merits and values of that and, and, and his role in that. I think last I saw, and it may all be prior to a most recent contract, but essentially Roberto Martinez was being paid at Belgium by the Belgian FA or Federation around about 300, 350 grand a year, which I am definitely assuming that he earned more than at Everton and even at Wigan potentially as well. So if you take that parallel and add it to the, to the kind of the player pool and on Buffalo Mark Cole's bingo card. He's never had the huge talks about those Stoke players who were attracted to Stoke because they were seen as a stepping stone at the time and Stoke were, were perfectly happy to play that role. Well, here we go again. Players like Jordan Shakiri and Afalai at the time were given that exact promise to say that this is your launch point for better Premier League wages. We'll pay you more than you'll get now at a good European club elsewhere. We'll pay you more than you would do at other Premier League clubs, potentially, apart from those top six, which if you play well with us, we're happy for you to join at some point. So if Stoke, as an example, or Wigan and Everton, as a managerial example, show you what kind of level players are happy to be at in terms of wage earnings for their career at that point then you can understand how that is a foundation point for a pyramid, whether indeed the top of the pyramid is teetering at a diagonal agonal angle on a membrane or not. That is the power of the Premier League. And it doesn't necessarily recommend it too much because, like you say, it's difficult then to get rid of all these players who are not necessarily happy, not playing their best football, but earning loads and loads of money so you can't shift them. If the Premier League is that triangular shaped hat that sits at the very top of the pyramid. I'm assuming usually that there's money from the brim of the hat that filters down. Are we, this summer, are we relying on... the analogy on... a bit too fast. Sorry, I'm, I'm trying. Does it have to come all the way from the peak? Do, do we effectively need a, a Harry... Is, is Harry Kane the starter pistol? On, on the summer transfer spending enough, within the Premier League? Probably probably not, because City are determined to sell one, two, maybe even three key marquee-ish players from their squad to fund potentially Grealish and Kane. So to do that, they'd want at least an idea that they'll be successful in that before spending the 200 million, roughly, that they'd have to spend on Kane and Grealish. So they're going to try and get rid of Mares or Bernardo Silva. They need somebody to take them. And that's mm. when it becomes difficult for clubs like City, who have these assets. Yes, they're great assets, but they're paying them a lot of money and they're perfectly happy to be there. Even if they would like to move, they won't move unless the wage packet offered by a club who can't necessarily afford to do that is approaching it, because otherwise they'll say, I'm happy with my but, 75% of but I think and if- that's it. To take Steve's slightly bizarre but inventive fedora example, the fedora <laughs> model of the market, jauntily kind of angled on top of a head of a body. Do you know what? Uh, Just on the fedora thing, we watched the, the England-Italy Euro final with some friends from school and one of them turned up in the... A, a woman turned up in the fedora that her dad wore to the 1966 World Cup final in the hope that it would bring England luck. 
It didn't, but I have to say it was an incredibly natty look. Well, hang on a minute. So <laughs> is it nobody worn that hat for 55 years? Because it must have been worn prior and it not worked for 55 he also, years. He also wore it to the 1966 FA Cup final, which, as Chinch will know, as a student of the, uh, the game for the clubs he yeah. represented, was won by Everton. And he was an Everton fan. So what you're saying is that look wears off. A lucky hat has a sell-by date. Like fashion, a fashion comes around. Luck, not so much. The, in terms of the fedora, the lucky fedora. <laughs> on the top of a head, on top of the body, on top of a pyramid, at a jaunty angle no, diagonally. I didn't no. start the fire, for crying out loud. It's just a person. The, the, the market is now just a person where the Premier League is the jaunty fedora. The, bid, the other bid four leads are the head. Then, like, the shoulders are Holland and Portugal. <laughs> and, and yet Rory mentioned at the beginning of this that maybe Stephen had gone a little too far. I didn't. That was chinch. Um, the, I'm on board with this. No, Rory I didn't need to say it. I could just see from the way you rolled his eyes into the top of his head that uh, I, I'd stretched it to breaking point. I think that you do often get money. So it's, it, I think, it, to be honest, it's like it's one of those things that journalists, and I include myself in this, always try and say, well, it works like this or it works like that. It's a bit of both. Like, sometimes you'll get a massive deal that triggers everything and, you know, someone will give Dortmund 80 million quid for Jadon Sancho and Dortmund will go and spend 40 million on Daniel Marlin and 20 million on somebody else and and then PSV go and spend a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think the, 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 the thing that's probably most important is that every summer and to an extent every January... Palace and Everton and Southampton and whoever else pump a few hundred million quid collectively into France and Germany and Spain and to a lesser extent Italy. And then some of the minor leagues pick up, you know, Club Bruges will get £40 million all told from English teams for maybe not, they might not even do a bid sale, but they might do a couple of £8 million players to to mid-table Premier League teams. And it's just the weight of money that comes out of England. That, that tends to drive the market and everyone waits until that point before spending. But to be honest, even within the Premier League, I think there's now an issue that if you are Manchester City and you're trying to sell one or two of Sterling, Mares, Bernardo Silva, Gabriel Jesus, at Laporte to, to allow you the elastic and the PR goodwill to go and sign Harry Kane and Jack Grealish, then you've got a bit of a problem because you're paying those players far more than they... Did I say paying or playing? You're paying those players far more than they might reasonably earn in the current economic climate. Mm -hmm. Even someone like Arsenal or Spurs, you're not going to sell to Man United or Liverpool. You probably won't sell to Chelsea. or In an ideal world, you wouldn't sell to Chelsea. But Juventus can't pay Gabriel Jesus the amount that you're paying him. They they just can't. and, And they won't. They might do it for Ronaldo because Ronaldo comes with with extra economic benefits in terms of, of brand building and all that stuff and commercial agreements. But, I mean, Gabriel Jesus isn't the most famous person on Instagram. So why would you pay him the amount of money that Man City are paying him? And I think that that is the issue. That's an issue across the board that, that players at the very top clubs are earning too much money. And the, by, by allowing this kind of aggressive wage inflation to take hold, the top clubs are not just in England, but across Europe, are kind of building a problem for their own future because at some point you're going to want to get rid of all of those players in some way. And as Barcelona are experiencing at the moment, it's very hard to shift them once they're once they're in because for all that Samuel Umtiti and Philippe Coutinho and, and Merlin Pjanic are getting pelters for refusing to take pay cuts or, or cancel the contracts to help Barcelona out, 
why on earth should they? They are legally, Barcelona are legally obliged. They owe them that money. How often do you walk away from money that someone owes you? Probably not that often. The And I think that is a, that's a broader problem. With the Premier League, the issue is much more pronounced because the wages for the for the average elite player, you know, playing in a, a tenth, you know, at Everton or whatever. It's, it's a problem that Sheffield Wednesday had, not in terms of, of just selling players on when they want to bring other players in, if you get relegated. And how many clubs have had this problem? Sheffield Wednesday did have it. There's an influx of foreign players. Some very good foreign players came to us. Presumably they would have been paid more than we were, the English players there. Relegation. And then these players are on two, three years. And there's no way they're going to go unless it's right for them, unless the club maybe pay their contracts up to balance the, the, the lesser amount of money they're going to have to be paid to, to go elsewhere. But they're not going to rush out the door, and they didn't. And why should, again, you sign contracts. That's You don't plan to get relegated, but that's the way that it goes. And the, it's a balancing act. And for certain clubs, you've got to be very careful if you, if you do this, that if you get relegated, you're in, you're in big trouble. And there's lots of clubs that do face that, that, that problem. Year after year, there's clubs you think, oh, they're going to be safe, be fine with the players that they've got. And it, it happens. And then you've got a major problem getting getting rid of your players because they, because players always used to say, even if they weren't in the team, well, I'm getting paid this and that and that the money's the thing. And it isn't really. A lot of it is playing. You want to play. When you're at certain stages of your career, certainly in your 20s, you want to be playing. So there will come that point when, say, you are relegated, you're getting very well paid and there's a, a foreign club or a European club that want to buy you, but it will take a drop in your wages they'll be saying to the club that they're at, right, you need to sort out my contract at this end rather than any kind of transfer because I'm not moving. But they probably should be getting paid what they're going to get paid at the club that they move to. They're getting overpaid, really, but they've got used to that. And that, that is the problem that, that a lot of clubs face is, is bringing these players in on very good contracts, long-term contracts, and then how on earth do you get rid of them because the, the, the power is with the player. But that, Chinch, that was more than 20 years ago or 20 years ago that that was happening. And then there was the famous Winston Bogard story from... Uh, what about four years later, four or five years later, at the beginning of the Abramovich era at, at Chelsea? Why have clubs not learned to a mm. sufficient degree so that, that doesn't happen anymore? Because that is the problem. Like Manchester City had that problem when they were first taken over and the, se- and the, and the players that they bought in that first initial... The Adibayor example. Yeah, Adibayor, people like that. They they could not get rid of them. They had to send them on loan after loan after loan after loan and agree to pay 50%, 100% of their wages. So, and that was, you know, that was 10 years ago now. But why have clubs not learned to, to do something about that in a way that allows them to get rid of those assets because it's do they, it's self well, it's, it's self defeating if you like, isn't it? Well, maybe, maybe they feel it's happened to other clubs. It won't happen to us. Maybe it's as simple as that. That we we know our stuff. We know the players we're bringing in. We know the length of contract is right. The money we're paying is right. And it simply won't happen to us. And there are clubs clearly that it, it, relegation. If you talk about relegation and, and the catastrophic financial effect that that has, that was never going to happen to City, regardless of what players they bought. And obviously they they did probably buy players that weren't going to win them the league but again they were a step up from what they already had but with a team like Wednesday who are season on season is about very much staying in the league and if you spend money on five or six players and it's not necessarily the transfer fees it's the wages and the length of contracts are where your problems kick in because they might only have a season and then you drop out of the league and then suddenly it becomes a major problem. You've got players on three or four year contracts there, but maybe the, the clubs just think it, it won't happen to us because our procurement is right, our, our financial setup is right, and yes, other other clubs have had problems, but but we won't, and invariably they do. I agree. I, I, like you said, I just don't understand how the clubs haven't foreseen this problem, it, regardless of the, the the pandemic. That it's just unsustainable. 
But I guess in the example of Manchester City, that they had to effectively explode the Premier League pay structure to, to bring in the players that they they required to make a huge, significant step forward 10 or 11 years ago. And and the issue is, is you can't just do that in the short term because the contracts are constantly overlapping. You, the next time you bring in a player, <clears throat> they want parity with your, your highest earning current contract. And, and that pays itself forward consistently to the point where, you know, are they still ultimately paying the price for the deal that Emmanuel Adebayor signed over 10 years ago and why they now find themselves in a situation, even with their incredibly deep pockets, that as, as Rory was just talking about, they've got to offload yeah. really stellar talent before they can potentially bring in the one that they really, really want. I don't, I don't think they have to. I think not not in an economic sense. That Man City, if we're also... So they must honest, be seen to be doing the right thing. I think, I think yeah, it's, it's partly, partly that, yeah. and it's partly that you can't have so... That you can't... It's an, it's an it's a recognition that the thing that holds City back from just acquiring all of the best players in the world, sort of playing FIFA in real life, is that you can't keep all of those players happy. That if you've got Harry Kane and and Jack Grealish to deal with, you you probably can't have Bernardo Silva, although Bernardo Silva seems like an excellent character, sitting around playing ten games a season. That's that that doesn't work. I think there's a, there is a PR element to it. Um, but I think largely it's to do with squad management rather than finances. So is it the fragility of this this sort of independent ecosystem that the Premier League has created financially where it sits outside the rest of the major European leagues that, that even when you've got the sort of resources that Manchester City have got, money doesn't solve all problems? I think, I think there is, and this, this isn't talked about a lot in, in the context of City and PSG, but I think there is a, there's a natural balancing factor which is that you there is a reason you can't just go and buy 25 the 25 best players in the world you know two best in each position in the world and and go on and say right go on this is our squad and that is because you can't keep them all happy that is the one thing restricting the establishment of a kind of full-on like Miami Heat style super team that that you can't you can't say well would you know our first choice striker you know our, our first choice left winner is Lionel Messi and our second choice left winner is Cristiano Ronaldo because they both want to play every game and blah, blah, blah. No, ma- no matter how many nation states you've got back in you, the, that is the one sort of restricting factor. I think the, the Premier League's problem is just a nat- almost just the natural flip side, the natural consequence of, of its huge advantage, which is it has far more money than everybody else which means it can pay more wages, which means it can, it can use those to attract more talent and to cement its position as the best league in the world. That's ultimately what's happened. The Premier League has more money, which has mean allowed it to buy more players, better players, so all of its teams have got a lot better. The flip side of that is that when you want to get rid of those players, you have priced yourselves out of the, sell, out of the seller's market. And that, that is just the way that that works. And I'm not sure there's, a, there's an easy solution to that other than saying we're going to pay less money to players, but by doing that, you'll get a lower quality of player. With low, low basic, high appearance. Um, you could incentivize, you yes, could incentivize a bit, a bit more, and but I think the, a lot of clubs are doing that. But you, ultimately, you you can't either within the league or or within football in general. You can't be like, well, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna kind of low lowball ourselves because if even if nineteen Premier League teams agreed that they were going to institute some sort of wage cap to try and alleviate this problem, one of them wouldn't, and they'd get a massive advantage, and so no one will do it. But the, the, it's 
I imagine that they are relying at least in principle, and, and very rarely does this take place in practice, but in principle, if a, if a player wants to move because they're not playing and then they are refusing to move because the team that is offering them a chance to play isn't paying them enough, the conflict that that creates is one that at least, again, in, in a sense of kind of reputational PR, they can say, well, listen, there's an opportunity for you to leave. Yes, you'll be pay, paying paid less but playing more. And the reason that, that you need to leave is because you're playing less. Surely that's something that they would, an opportunity that they would take. But again, in practice, that, that doesn't work out. But even in... Even in Manchester City's case, there is this this element that, yes, they've got more money than everybody else, but they are obsessed with appearing to not be spending money in a in a profligate sense. Is that the right word? But surely for, for someone, <laughs> for a club like Manchester City, and the same would apply to PSG and, and others around Europe, is that if they've got players on big wages that they can't give playing time to and somebody else, a, a non-direct competitor, is willing to take that player on... Then, then surely City just have to accept that they overpaid in the market for good reasons at the time. And now they need to, and I know they do do this, but it just has to be accepted that they need to swallow a, a chunk of the contract to, to take responsibility for their decision in the past and to take responsibility for, for that player's future by allowing them to go elsewhere, but take a hit on, on, the, but that's, on their that's, that's exactly why they didn't go for Alexis Sanchez, for example, because they were aware of how difficult it might be down the road if they were to try and match what United were prepared to pay for Alexis Sanchez, and they didn't do it. It's also why, and again, partly PR, but it's also why they didn't want to spend £75 million on Virgil van Dijk, which is probably a mistake because he was absolutely worth it, but also why they've been particularly proud up until now, and it's likely they'll break it twice this summer, but it's up until now, of not spending more than 60-odd million pounds on four or five players, some of whom have been very successful, others have not been. But they are, like I said, obsessed with this idea that if they're going to buy Kane and Grealish, and they're briefing, I think there was a piece by Sam Lee last week in The Athletic, about the, the idea they must sell, they must sell, they will sell, because they don't want to be seen to be spending 200 million pounds without recouping anything. Therefore, they don't want to be seen to be the kind of people who splurge unnecessarily, they want to be seen to be efficiently spending the wealth that they have at at no great cost to the reputation they have for doing so, having accrued that over the last three or four years. Yeah, and there's, look, for, for whatever the, the the merits or drawbacks of the city of the city project, n- nobody likes losing money. They, city and PSG might not care as much as everybody else, but they, they they're not they're not in it to just throw money away. Without you know, even I mean, Real Madrid in their most sort of foolish days never willfully like threw money away just because they just just because they could. They want they want to be sensible because that's the way that business people operate. I think that city are. Again, kind of an outlier. They're in a unique position almost in that they, they cannot... They are diagonally yeah. above everybody else. I think with the with the rest of the Premier League, it, it, I, take, I, know, I know what you mean, Hugh, that like you, you wonder whether they, they, they just have to accept the that sometimes you get one wrong and you have to, it costs you a bit of money and you've already committed that money, so you might as well give it to the player because you owe it to them. And then, you know, hey, presto, you're free. I, I don't know if clubs have thought that, think certainly in the past have thought that lucidly about it. I think they see a player they want, they go and buy the player. They assume it will work out because you kind of have to, you have to take a leap of faith to an extent. Um, and if it doesn't, they they don't really contemplate what they're going to do in that situation until it arises. That they, they, all they care about is having access to, and I think this is starting to change a little bit, 
is having access to the best players for now. That that is the the extent of their thinking. That there is a, that is the player we need for for next season's team. So we're going to go and buy them. I don't I don't think there's any kind of sense of of what will we do if this goes wrong, or or should we offer a slightly lower wage so that um, so that we've definitely got that resale or whatever it is. We you know we can shift them in 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 a worst case scenario. Because I think if that if that was a factor that they were taking properly into consideration, I'm sure it comes up, but properly into consideration, then wages in the Premier League would be lower because they would be like, well, we have to we we have to fit with the rest of Europe so that we've got a market to sell to. But they can't do that because they know that acquiring the players is the only way to, in, in the most immediate sense, sustain their place in the Premier League and in the broader collective, probably unspoken sense, to maintain the Premier League superiority. Because if if the Premier League could only offer wages... There's nothing, there's nothing inherently superior about English football. If the Premier League could only offer wages that were on a par with the Bundesliga, then you might you might get some players wanting to play in England because of the history of the teams, or you might get some players wanting to play in England because of the environment and the oh, sorry, because of the atmosphere. You might you might get some players wanting to play in England as they supported one of the clubs or whatever, or because they, you know, they offer Champions League football. But basically you you You'd lose out on a load of players because they could earn just as much in Germany, and they might want to go and play in Frankfurt or Wolfsburg as they as much as they do in at Leicester or Everton. There's no the, the advantage that the English teams have. The reason the Premier League has been able to establish its superiority is because it can it can pay the players more. And, They're not and, coming for the weather. And what what c- kind of confuses me is that you, many people know about the the, the word amortization, which is the, the the kind of decreasing asset value of that player on your profit and loss sheet essentially until uh, the end of their contract so when you lease a car and over time it it drastically loses value particularly if you've got a a succession of minor dints in the bodywork yeah it's like like they expect you to to own a family vehicle for four years but Mm. there'd be absolutely no wear and tear on it exactly yeah (laughs) crazy it's nonsense and on rory smith and indeed the Whittington Smith's profit and loss sheet, that Hyundai Tucson was very much depreciating as time went on. But what, what clubs, and Chelsea very much, when they spent all their money uh, last summer, the, the reason that, and it was very excellently explained by somebody, I can't remember who, the reason that that worked for them financially against financial play, fair play rules is that because they can build in the amortization to the la- latter stages of those contracts and therefore that works out for them financially somehow. So they're very, very clever. The accountants of these clubs are very clever at working out how to do this. What I don't understand is how they don't apply that to contracts and to, to think if you sign a player at 28 on a five-year deal, that maybe in the fifth year of that deal, they won't be quite as a significant con- contributor to your team. They won't be quite as good because they're they're uh, older than the moment that you sign. So, so why do they not structure contracts in the way that they do a lot in American sports, which is to say, in the fifth year of that contract, this is your guaranteed amount of money, and it's a lot less than the first year of your contract because you're going to be a completely different player. This is the interesting Rory was saying about if clubs want somebody, it, it, it doesn't really matter in many ways in terms of the money or the length of contract. Because when I signed at, at Sheffield Wednesday, I don't know whether I told the story of, of Ron Atkinson when I was talking to him about contracts, and I think I was 29, 28, 29 and it was initially a three-year contract we were talking about. And then he just said kind of offhandly, do you think we should make it four? And I just said, yeah, because I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm seeing that actually signing a 29-year-old with a history of injury problems and poor form. And you want me to sign a four-year contract rather than the three? So again, but if you just, I don't know whether he felt, again, that then tips the balance that I would have offers of three years 
elsewhere, as if that's going to happen. Yeah, Ron, loads of offers coming in. Loads. And they don't Especially give me Kit Oh, you, you better, exactly, you better sign me now. The Kit Kats come in. But that, that's I the crazy it. thing. Maybe they just want you so they don't actually think it through fully, and which also, is bizarre, it's not the manager's isn't it? Money. It's not the manager's money. The no, of course it isn't. No, again, he wants you to, to come and do whatever. Yeah, he was a football player for him. Yes. He took Chinch's silence as a negotiating tactic, whereas he was simply <laughs> Sometimes just staring Steve, at the It's like in co-commentary. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not say anything. And let other people think. It's what detectives, you know, when they're in the interview room, they don't say anything. I'd be a rubbish detective. They let the, the criminal, I wasn't a criminal by any means, just fill the void. So by being quiet for once, I got an extra year's contract. You should have sucked the air through your teeth a bit longer, Chinch. You might have still been paid by Sheffield Wednesday I now. At, I was looking at five. I was looking at five. I've got to tell you, Ron. Oh, the Kit Kats are here. I'll sign for four. I'll tell you what. The amount of Kit Kats that I take from this mound of Kit Kats provided by Mrs. Atkinson is the amount of years that I would like. One, two, three. Five-fingered Kit Kats. But again, it's just if, they, if that, that's just when Rory said that. I thought, yeah, that's exactly. It just seemed to be like, well, have you not put any of this... And worked out how much it's going to cost you over that period of time. And three years to four years is quite a big leap financially as well. I just Again, it's just maybe it is. And again, with the club, I think I told the story again, going to sign the contract. It, it was as if the, 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 the chief executive hadn't seen. And it was just kind of a fate complete. There we go. There's his getting. He was like, what? Where, where's all this come from? So it's bizarre, <laughs> again, how the club seems to work. And a manager at a certain club to, seems to work. We talked about managers last week. Do you think that, that, that Sheffield Wednesday at that time and, and, and all the signings that they made, not just you, that the, yeah. you know, the big name signings that they made, oh. that there was, there was a sense that perhaps they were in Big Ron's thrall and that they not only trusted him, but they wanted to make him happy, which is yeah. also an issue that uh, refers back to last week when you're trying to get the kind of manager who suits the fans or that the fans want, the kind of name that they're looking for. If you are mm. already thinking like that, that, that when that manager comes in and says, I want this player for four years, not three, you're going to say, OK, then, because we want to make you happy because your appointment has made our, our fans happy. And yeah. so you get into a bit of a, a cycle of making poor decisions based on the very first one, which is trying to cater for this kind of intangible desire or expectation level. Of, of a fan base or even just the media response to what you do. It's it's about seeing being seen to be doing the right thing or the thing that others want you to do. But surely for the modern club, there can't be that disconnect between a coach and manager and, again, the whoever runs the club. They can't be, well, what you want and what we want. You're just going to tell us and you'll kind of spring it on us and then we'll go from there. Surely there has to be those conversations about what we want. And actually, the driving force are, are the owners, you would think, and the, the managers and coaches are involved in that process. I just don't, I can't see that that's the case these days where that would happen, where a player or a contract would be produced and the club would, that's the first that the club see of it. I, think I, the, just, I just can't I, see that that's the case now. I think a lot of clubs now are trying to think more short, more, more long-term, that, you know, that there is a kind of vision of, of, sporting directors and technical directors, directors of football, whatever it is, someone who whose job it is to to oversee kind of what not comes not not just what comes this year, but what comes next year and the year after. And I know that most teams will kind of think to the level of, all right, well, there's this 19 year old left back that we quite like, but we've got this 17 year old left back in the academy, so we won't sign the 19 year old as it'll block the 17 year old's path. And that that is to be encouraged, and it is changing a little bit. But I think the the two factors that are, are really relevant. One is that that model doesn't still still doesn't work in England as naturally as it does elsewhere. So there is always this tension between, or a perceived tension between the manager and the sporting director, um, in the sense that the manager wants to add more players, but the sporting director doesn't, and that the sporting director is just some sort of corporate 
asshole who's standing in the way of the manager's dreams. Um, <laughs> the but the other thing that I think is really in, really important is is transfer culture, and I wonder to what extent because the Premier League has has risen on the back of having more money and therefore acquiring better players and having to pay more wages to to do that that in England there is a much more probably much more subtle but much more kind of pervasive idea that the way you succeed is by signing players whereas elsewhere I think there is a sense I mean Italy is a very tradery sort of football culture that there's not a huge amount of money so they they sort of duck and dive and they, they they bob and weave to try and get deals together they still do a lot of trading there's a reason all those transfer specialist journalists are Italian um but in France, Germany, and Spain, there seems to be a degree of focus on either bringing players through or on acquiring bargains that you can then sell on to England. So that there's much more vulnerability in the Premier League to the idea that you need to go and spend a lot of money so that you can compete in the Premier League at whatever in whatever bit of the Premier League you're in, because you're at the top, you have access to all this money, so you can go and sign those players. That is what you should do. And to get those players, just as with change, they need to offer more money and longer contracts. That's you, you know, if you can offer someone fifty grand a week over three years, that's one level of financial commitment. If you have to offer them fifty grand a week over four years, that's a, a totally different financial commitment. So I wonder to what extent it's related to the Premier League's Any position. Kit-Kats involved, though? Or... There are always Kit-Kats involved. Okay, but good. I, good. I wonder what, to what extent it's, in, it's related to like the Premier League's position at the top of the pyramid, that there is this sense that you ha- that spending money, is because you can, is something that you almost should do, that you're, you're under some sort of compunction to spend money, you, or, or at least that you don't need to worry about spending money. Because, you know, if, you know, if you're Nantes or Nîmes or... Granada, then you don't have a huge amount of money to spend. So you, you have to kind of cobble together a squad as best you can. Whereas if you're Newcastle or Southampton, to an extent, you can think, well, we can go and commit that £11 million transfer fee and those £8 million in wages over five years. We'll amortise it so it, it, we pretend that we haven't committed that amount of money. But you, you have that money available, so you might as well spend it. And I, I wonder whether that is is what drives a lot of the Premier League's short-term thinking, that there is a there is at some level an abiding belief that you can solve problems by buying players. And perhaps it would be better for, for Newcastle and Southampton to think a little bit more like German, French yeah. and Spanish clubs in thinking that they might be able to get a bargain and, and sell them on because they might get a better player and they might get a better financial situation as well. And a club like Southampton has demonstrated that they clearly, even in these strange and, and financially stretched times, are fairly confident of their resources, that they are allowing an asset like Danny Ings to enter the final year of his contract without actively looking for a buyer now. They, 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 he has said, I'm not going to sign a new contract. He is their most likely source of goals. And Southampton clearly feel financially secure enough that they'll say fine right we will take one more season of your goals and have you walk away on a free in a year's time even though they must know that to be able to replace the quality he provides them with is going to cost them in excess of 50 million pounds I mean ultimately a team like Southampton is not going to be able to to find a like-for-like replacement for for Danny Ings. That that, that is is just not at all practical. But it shows you the 
the the belief that they clearly have that financially there is a way forward from allowing mm. an asset like that to just walk away for for no transfer fee because the value that he has with one year left on his contract Mm. is not the value that he has for a year of goals so therefore yeah they've made that decision to do that and perhaps this is a premier league exceptionalism subject that that other clubs in other leagues are happy to exist and indeed are complicit in because they see the benefit to them if the premier league continues to at an exceptional rate and separated diagonally or as a fedora to jaunty angle at such a rate that they are exceptional, then perhaps it's it's a, an element that isn't too negative because it is an ecosystem that the Premier League plays such a crucial role in to allow to continue. Nowhere else in Europe is a bottom quarter of the table side with a potentially £50 million worth of striker going into their final year of, of, its, of his contract. They're, they're selling him. No way yeah. are they holding on to him. Is there a benefit to the clubs in Europe as well in terms of taking loan players? We talked about Premier League clubs not stockpiling, but buying in lots of top quality players. They can't play them all. They get unhappy. They then loan them out. And again, they probably think if we loan you out, we might have to pay 50% of your wages, maybe even 100%. But a club get a good player who, who wants to be playing. And over time, maybe a season or two out on loan, they might be more keener to, to maybe leave the parent club and, and go and play somewhere else because they've experienced playing somewhere else so maybe clubs are saying well okay you can sign all these players we know they're not they can't all play for you week in and week out so maybe then eventually the clubs that have these players have to loan them out and clubs around Europe will take some good players and eventually maybe get them for a realistic price and that's exactly that's exactly the ecosystem that those clubs are complicit in creating because they will benefit from getting a a player for 50 percent of wages that the that the selling club or the club that own the asset are desperate to get rid of to any great extent and even paying 50% of the wages, they're willing to make that sacrifice to do so. So yes, it is It is a, a an environment in which those clubs who get those players are very much happy to live in. Even though they're never going to compete with the Premier League, they can benefit from it. Yeah. And that's why it's something that they're happy to live along with. If you, if you look at Gladbach in Chelsea and Andreas Christensen, that was the that's that's the exact the, the Landback were delighted to have a player of that quality for two years while he was developing and then handed him back to Chelsea. So no questions asked. That's fine. We've benefited and mm-hmm. hopefully we have shown to you that we are a good place for you to send your your kind of twenty year old defenders or midfielders or whatever who you can't use at the moment, but you need them to get a couple of years' experience. Come and send them here. We'll we'll do the job that you want us to do. That's that's how it works. That's a reflection of of where everybody stands in the in the pecking order. How about that? A transactional but still theoretical handshake from across Europe to England. A, a, a trading partnership that allows benefits on both sides of both England and indeed mainland Europe uh, to prosper and continue. Like That sounds to me like an excellent idea and something that uh, not just football clubs but maybe so, so anyway the, the, <laughs> kind of the, the, the European hand is saluting the the Premier League fedora yes 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 tipping, tipping off the fedora no, the, back the, the, yes. the, Euro- yes. the European hand is sort of adjusting the Premier League fedora ah. so just tipping it to, to, to make sure that it, it looks good Coming up on part three, more tortured metaphors. Uh, yes, we thought we'd have enough to talk about for three parts uh, This is the one tactics 
The days of steadfastly sticking to 4-4-2, you know, because it's England, are long gone. But is the Premier League actually the crucible in which tactical evolution takes place? Or does the exceptionalism we've discussed so far not extend to this part of the game? Because, frankly, it's not based in Germany. Uh, so it has no chance to. So that is all coming next week. It is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is usually when Andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details removed. But as last week... Uh, we have a second soccer story from listener Matt Pomroy, uh, to whom we say once again, thank you. And this one is entitled, Sorry, Mr. Girard. We were knocking about outside the ground in Nantes before the Chile against Cameroon World Cup game in 1998, when I saw a laminated pass covered in sponsors' logos just lying there on the ground. Picking it up, I realised it was for access to the corporate hospitality tent, and some especially invited guest, a Mr. Monsieur Girard must have dropped it. So I did what any hungry journalism student would have done. I put it on and happily went in search of some free hospitality. Many glasses of champagne and handfuls of canapes later, I emerged blinking into the sunshine and handed the pass over to my mate who went in for his pre-match meal and a bottle of red. <laughs> then the third of our group went in and had what the Beano would call a slap-up feast. When he came out, he informed me that there was a stand where you could get your picture taken with a man dressed as Footix who was the 1998 World Cup mascot, but he hadn't bothered to do it. The mixture of champagne and sun made this sound, to me, like too good an opportunity to pass up. So back among the plush carpet and canapes, I walked up to the photographer who checked my corporate pass, made a note, and smiled as I got into position. After the photo was taken, of me posing, with drink in hand, looking a bit worse for wear, hugging a man dressed as a giant blue rooster, I asked where I should go to pick up my picture. That's okay, Monsieur Girard, the photographer replied. We have the details from your pass. It will be sent to your office. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. So, seven to ten days later, some poor guy in Paris, who was probably still ruining losing his hospitality pass, received a photo of a scruffy journalism student wearing his pass, drinking the champagne that was rightfully his, <laughs> and most importantly, posing with the French mascot, the mascot of his country. So, sorry, Monsieur Girard. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If, of course, you have any soccer stories, do send them our way. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Rory and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. That is, it is worrying that three people can get in on the same pass that no one at any point Check the picture against the person. No it was pictures. One, one, fair no, enough. Three, three. No pictures. No pictures. No pictures. Oh, no pictures. I mean, pictures. you're lucky to get it laminated. I mean, oh. Hugh, to be fair, Chinch doesn't, you know, Chinch famously doesn't know a vast amount about the 1998 World Cup, does he? He doesn't have any experience. I know a lot about the, pre, the coin. pre-World Cup. I, Not I about tra- the World Cup. <laughs> I travelled to do a thing on JJ Okocha at the Africa Cup of Nations. Clang! One year. Clang, clang, clang. Uh, at a game being played in Monastir, but I had to travel to Tunis to collect my pass. It's about a three-hour train ride up the coast. And when I got there, the person who had assured me that they had arranged my accreditation revealed in the lobby of the hotel where I met them that they had done no such thing and just gave me a pass for someone who looked vaguely like they could be me. Except that the person in the photo on that accreditation was wearing glasses. So I had to attend the game in Monastir. 
with a pass a, belonging to somebody else and keep my shades on the entire time. This is a great wire soccer case, story. Just Steve, in case anybody belter. challenged me. Oh, that's Completely fantastic. wasted that content. We've been doing this for like 250 yeah. episodes. It and just, now you come up with that. Oh, my, look, just throw it away. Just toss oh, it off. Come on. You look, you look a bit like this middle-class white guy. That'll...